As uh, Christians, we long for the day when the kingdom of God will be fully revealed. We know that God is reigning, has been reigning, and will continue reigning over all things. Indeed, the sovereign reign of God over his creation is what enables each Christian to get out of bed in the morning. If God was not sovereign, or not sovereign for even the most singular of moments, may as well sleep in. But ever since the fall, when sin and suffering and death first entered the world, God's people have been longing for the day when God will reveal his true kingship and authority over the world. So, when Jesus arrived on the scene proclaiming that the kingdom of God is at hand, he was addressing this longing. Uh, George Eldon Ladd was a well-known New Testament scholar and he wrote much about the kingdom of God. And from his studies, he defined the kingdom of God as being this. The sovereign rule of God manifested in the person and work of Christ which he creates a people over whom he reigns and in a realm through which his power, the power of his reign is realised. Essentially what he's saying is that the prime meaning of the kingdom of God refers to the reign of God, his authority. But a king necessarily has a realm in which to exercise his reign. As we saw last week in Mark chapter 1, when uh, Jesus began his public ministry, uh, he declared that the kingdom of God was at hand in his own person. Uh, The kingdom of God is at hand in the person of Jesus, is how we phrased it. Through Jesus, the saving rule of God entered into history, fulfilling God's promises of old, such that all who would believe in Jesus would be saved and come under God's gracious rule. They would enter the kingdom. But as we saw as well last week, in the wisdom of God, he has established that his reign will be revealed in progressive realms. Uh, Firstly, in the lives of his people. Secondly, in Christ's future millennial reign on earth, although as I explained last week, uh, faithful Christians debate the meaning of this aspect. But thirdly, finally, fully, we will experience God's reign in the realm of the new heavens and the new earth, where there will be no more crying or tears or pain, only joy as we see God. But we live in the now and the not yet. You may have heard that phrase before and we can thank George Eldon Ladd for it. We live in the now and the not yet. A time when God's rule has been brought in through Christ and where his people experience the blessings of the future and yet we still live in this fallen world. We know suffering. We really know suffering, but we know that this will finally end one day in God's perfect timing. 
So the kingdom of God is at hand in the person of Jesus. But there are two other important aspects from Jesus' opening proclamation that I would like us to to see today. I want us to see that the kingdom of God is at hand in the passion of Jesus and also in the preaching of Jesus. God's saving rule is brought about through the person of Jesus and by his passion, by his suffering and death for sin. And moreover, the person and the passion of Jesus demands a response. Without responding to the preached good news that God's salvation is found in Christ alone, then it is impossible to enter the kingdom of life. So if you haven't already, please turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 1. And verses 14 to 15. And let's read these verses once more before we begin. So Mark chapter 1, from verse 14. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So last week we saw firstly that the kingdom of God is at hand in the person of Jesus. Now secondly we see that the kingdom of God is at hand in the passion of Jesus. After Jesus' baptism we read in Mark chapter 1 verses 12 to 13 it says this, the spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness And he was in the wilderness 40 days, being tempted by Satan, and he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Well then, in verse 14, we read of Jesus' arrival in Galilee to begin his public ministry. But it is clear from the wider biblical witness that about six months has actually taken place between verse 13 and verse 14. 14, that is, between Jesus' temptation and the beginning of his time in Galilee. And this is supplemented by the first four chapters of the Apostle John's Gospel account. Now, it's not essential for us to look into those details today. We'll do that next week when we look at the calling of the disciples. But I mention this now uh, to show you that there is continuity and harmony between all four gospel accounts. Uh, There's no contradiction between any of them. There is a a beautiful harmony, each writer bringing in certain aspects of the whole picture. But moreover, I, I mention this now to ask the question, why does Mark leave out these details between verse 13 and 14? Why? Well, I can see three reasons for that. Firstly, Mark wants to highlight the progression from the Old Covenant to the New. John the Baptist represents the Old Covenant. Uh, Elsewhere in the Gospels, he is described as the greatest among men. That is because he had the privilege of seeing the arrival of the promised Lord. All the other prophets spoke And they prophesied about someone to come, but they did not see who it was that would fulfill those promises. 
Listen to these words from 1 Peter chapter 1. Writing to the church about their salvation, he says in verse 10, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. All the prophets longed to understand who it was they were prophesying about. John alone got to see that. And so Mark shows the progression between the old to the new. The one who would baptize with the spirit in the new covenant had now arrived in Jesus Christ. But secondly, Mark also wants to highlight the prefigurement of suffering. You see, John's faithfulness to God and to preaching the word led him to being arrested. And the details of his arrest are outlined in Mark chapter 6. Through this passage, we learn that John is eventually killed. But why was he arrested? Well, Mark 6, verse 17 to 18 says, For it was Herod who had sent and seized John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. John got arrested for preaching the gospel and standing up for what it stood for. Well, this Herod is Herod Antipas, who ruled over the area of Galilee and Perea. And so John was arrested by the ruler of Galilee. Where does Jesus begin his public ministry? Galilee. And so this is certainly foreshadowing of what will happen to Jesus as a result of his ministry. Indeed, in Mark chapter 9, Jesus explicitly makes this connection between John's suffering and his own. Uh, Coming down from the mount where Jesus was transfigured and his glory was seen uh, by the three disciples and, and when he met in conversation with Moses and Elijah, We read this from verse 11. And they, as the disciples, they asked him, Why do the scribes say that that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they pleased, as it is written of him. Now that's referring back to a prophecy in the book of Malachi which spoke about Elijah coming before the day of the Lord. And here Jesus is equating John the Baptist with that uh, person of Elijah and they've done to him. Why should Jesus be any different? Of course the whole scope of Mark's gospel, indeed the gospels, is heading towards the cross While nobody was expecting the Messiah to be a suffering Messiah, the Old Testament is abundantly clear that the reign of the Messiah would be established through his substitutionary death on behalf of his people. Perhaps no verses speak clearer of this than Isaiah 53, verses 5 and 6. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. 
Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. It would be through Christ's passion, through his death on the cross for sin, that the kingdom of God could be accessed by sinners through faith in Christ the King. But lest we think that Christ's death was merely the natural, inevitable result of preaching against the culture of the day. Thirdly, Mark wants to highlight the providence of God. The phrase translated in English as now after John was arrested literally says after John was handed over. But without the reference of prison, uh, it leaves the question open as to the nature of this handing over. Was it man's work or was there something else at play here? The wider testimony of scripture emphasizes God's providential and sovereign guiding of all things. John's arrest and eventual death were not out of the sovereign plan of God. They were not removed from God's planning. But moreover, Christ's ministry, his future arrest and death were not a failure either. No, it would be through the passion of Christ that his kingship would be made known and bring people into his kingdom. All of this was under God's providential leading and this is hinted at from the outset of his ministry. The atoning work of Christ has come under much fire in recent years. Um, People denying that Christ had to die for sin. They say, what kind of God would demand sacrifice in order to bring about forgiveness? Well, they say, if God is loving, then why can't he just forgive? And so people come up with uh, their own views of the God that they want to worship. But we might ask, what kind of God demands sacrifice in order to bring about forgiveness? A holy, righteous and just God. The God who has revealed himself in the pages of scripture. If we wish to experience his saving reign, his kingdom rule in our lives, then we must recognize our sinfulness and acknowledge his mercy. His mercy shown by the sacrifice of his son to pay the price of our sin on our behalf. If we don't think that we're all that bad, then we won't see the urgency for a saviour. So the kingdom of God has arrived in the passion of Jesus. But there is one more aspect. Thirdly, lastly, the kingdom of God is at hand in the preaching of Jesus. Let me just read those two verses to us again. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, I want us to notice two things about Jesus preaching here. Number one is that it involves a clear declaration. 
I once had someone tell me that preaching isn't as important as doing because Jesus never preached. Well, God had one son and he made him a preacher. The Greek word translated here uh, is the same which described John the Baptist's ministry back in verse 4. It means to herald. And a herald was the official messenger of an authority figure. And who is the authority here? It is none other than God. Jesus proclaimed the gospel of God. That is the good news about God and his actions, but more importantly, the good news from God. Jesus declared the good news from God. There is no higher authority than that. Now, when Jesus began his public ministry, he began by preaching. Yes, he did far more than that because not only did he declare the good news, he was the good news. In his healing and exorcism ministry, he demonstrated the kingdom of God. He demonstrated God's sovereign reign breaking into the earthly realm. And moreover, it was through his death and his resurrection that God's grace and love and mercy were fully exhibited. But we must remember that Jesus exemplified the means in which the good news is to be made known. And the emphasis on preaching and teaching in Jesus' earthly ministry was then carried on through uh, the ministry of the apostles. Jesus sent them out preaching. Mark chapter 6, verses 12 to 13. Jesus sent them out and we, we see this. So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. The healing and exorcism ministry demonstrating the truth of the message. Well, listen to to Peter's testimony. We're going to head to Acts for the next little bit. Acts chapter 10. These words as part of Peter's message. Verse 42 summarize what God had called them to. Verse 42, and he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he, that is Jesus, is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. That's the crux of what Jesus called the apostles to do. Listen to Paul's testimony in Acts chapter 9. After his conversion, we read from verse 20. And immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. We flick ahead to Acts chapter 20. Paul's mission hasn't changed. In Acts chapter 20, we read from verse 17. He's speaking to the uh, Ephesian elders. 
Verse 17 leads up to that. Now from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. We flick over to the last chapter of Acts, Acts 28 and the last two verses. Acts leaves with Paul in Rome and what do we see him doing? Verse 30, he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. We can see that the preaching of the word was carried on through the apostles. But we see further in scripture that this uh, task was given to the church, is carried through in the ministry of the church. I mean, listen to Paul's words to Timothy. In 2 Timothy, Paul is writing uh, to encourage Timothy in the faith and encourage him in the things that he is to set in place in the churches that he's working within. We read these words. 2 Timothy 2, verses 1 to 2. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Later in that same chapter, in verse 15, Paul says to Timothy, Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. And then these classic verses, at the end of chapter 3, verse 16, All scripture is God-breathed or breathed out by God and profitable for teaching for a proof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And then, forgetting the, the chapter division there, it goes straight in. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Now that's pretty clear from the pages of Scripture. Yet despite the divine mandate for preaching, despite the biblical witness of Jesus, the apostles, the early church, many Christians today think that improvements need to be made to this method. Why? Well... In the last 2,000 years, people have changed, haven't we? Culture has changed. And so our methods need to change to adapt as we move forward. They say, well, we can't just declare the message of the gospel, the message of the kingdom. No, that message is either too confusing or it's too confronting. And so we must either supplement or uh, devise new methods altogether. Instead of opening the Bible and declaring God's word, we need dramas 
and we need props and we need gimmicks and we need sales techniques. But in all these ways, we are showing that we are ashamed of the simple, plain and foolish message of a bloodied cross and an empty tomb. And the foolish means that God has ordained to say that message. We, uh, we show we don't believe in the clarity of Scripture, that God's Word speaks for itself. Um, we don't believe, as Paul says to Timothy, that Scripture is able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. But listen to how the Scriptures themselves rebuke such a weak trust in the power of the proclaimed Word. James chapter 1 Verses 17 to 18. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation of shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. That's James. What about Peter? 1 Peter 1 from verse 22. The apostle says this, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of a perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever." And this word is the good news that was preached to you. And then perhaps the most clearest affirmation of the need for preaching, Romans 10, verses 14 to 15, where the Apostle Paul says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. You know, even churches uh, who have a strong statement of faith in their constitution show they don't fully believe in the power of the gospel by their practices. Before coming here to Mafra, Crystal and I went through many, many websites of churches advertising pastoral jobs and... uh, Many of these had robust statements of faith, things that we could absolutely affirm. But what they truly believed about the power of God's word was reflected in the rest of the website, which had no reference or referral back to the gospel whatsoever. If churches try and change the divine method of proclaiming the gospel, then you can be sure that eventually they will be led to changing the divine message of the gospel itself. That's why we wanted to come and minister here in Mafra. I mean, have you read the stated goal of this church in the Constitution recently? I'm sure it's your bedside table. But here it is. Listen to these words. This is the goal of the Mafra Community Church. The overarching goal is to present Christ to all and all mature in Christ. In order to achieve this, the distinguishing feature of Mafra Community Church 
is that we are an evangelical church with a strong expository teaching ministry that God's people might be equipped to serve, live and proclaim the Lord Jesus and his gospel. This prominence of a Christ-centered Bible teaching emphasis permeates all the ministries of the church. Now this goal has not come out of man's imagination and creativity. Christ Jesus himself set the example when he began his public ministry with a clear proclamation that the sovereign saving rule of God has arrived through his own person and people need to hear. But Jesus does not merely give a clear declaration. Secondly, he makes a call for decision. The gospel concerns not only objective facts, but also a subjective experience, a personal experience. It answers the question, how is it one receives this good news? What is one to do with the knowledge that the kingdom of God is at hand? Well, what does Jesus say? Repent and believe in the gospel. It is clear from this that a person cannot earn their way into the kingdom by their own good works. But neither can they enter the kingdom without responding to its call. Now, repentance and belief are really two sides of the same coin. To repent means to change one's mind. But this, of course, means more than simply thinking differently. A true change of mind will always affect the heart and the will. It will result in a turning away from the old life of sin and a genuine submission, commitment, love and desire for Christ Jesus. The 16th century reformers elaborated on this truth when they declared that saving faith involved three things. Knowledge, assent and trust. Saving faith involves knowing Jesus intellectually, assenting to Jesus emotionally and trusting Jesus willingly. See, without knowledge of the king, we won't submit to the king. Without submission to the king, we show we don't really know the king. The call to repent and believe is issued throughout the whole of scripture. And so in light of the fact that it comes from God, in light of the fact that eternal blessings will result if it's accepted, in light of the fact that eternal punishment will result if it is refused, in light of all of this, the scriptures don't present this so much as an option that we can choose to take or leave. To repent and believe is a decisive call. It is a command from God. And with what's at stake, it can't be anything less than that. Listen to the Apostle Paul when he speaks to the philosophers in Athens. Acts 17, verse 30 to 31. Paul says this, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul's words here echo Jesus. 
The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. God's redemptive reign has broken into this fallen world in a dramatic way through the person of Jesus, who is the Messiah, the King. And this redemption will be made possible through the passion of Jesus in his substitutionary death on the cross for sin and his victorious resurrection. But finally, God's redemptive reign has arrived through the preaching of Jesus. His clear testimony of God's saving, righteous work. A message that calls for repentance. Calls for a response and it commands repentance and belief. God's reign as king is from everlasting to everlasting. But his reign is now manifested in and through Jesus. This reign will be brought to completion in the new heavens and the new earth. And if we wish to participate in the blessings of the kingdom to come, the necessary response is to humbly submit and to trust the King, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Father, we thank you that there is not a moment in history past or history future, where you are not reigning over your creation. But Father, we thank you for the inbreaking of that rule, your authority and power through the person of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he has come to live in obedience to your commands. We thank you that he came to die to pay the just punishment for the sins of your people. We thank you that his sacrifice was perfect, vindicated through his bodily resurrection. And we thank you that by your grace you draw people to respond in repentance and faith to this good news. Father, help us if we do not know and have submitted to Jesus fully before. We pray that your Holy Spirit would be convicting those hearts here today. But Father, for us who know you, who have been walking with Christ, we pray that you would continue to strengthen us as we learn more about who he is, as we continue to submit and commit to and desire and love the Lord Jesus, our King. And in his name we pray. Amen.